Hey, good morning, City Light. Uh, and you might be wondering, like, oh, there is another bald and bearded pastor on staff here. I've never seen this guy before. Yes, there is another. Uh, my name is Sam Reese, and I serve as uh, the campus pastor at uh, the West location. And can I just say it's so good to gather with you guys this morning. Uh, if you haven't already grabbed your Bibles or your phones, go ahead and get to Nehemiah chapter 9. There are a lot of verses that we are going to walk through uh, this morning. It's a nice long chapter. And so, uh, once again, it is really good to gather with you guys. If you didn't know, like I've been on staff, like coming up on five years. Uh, and for the first three years, I actually had the opportunity to work at both Midtown and West. So I used to get to gather regularly with the saints here, uh, but it's been over two years. And can I just say in the midst of two years, man, you guys look good. Like y'all have aged well uh, anyways, but it's so good to gather with you guys uh, this morning. And if you're wondering, uh, in case you didn't know, it is one of the most wonderful times of year. Y'all are like, why is it the most wonderful time of year? I thought that was Christmas. No, March Madness is here, you guys. Is anyone else excited about that? It started uh, this past week. And so if y'all haven't picked up on this yet, I keep saying y'all, I'm not from the Midwest. I always have to point out that I'm from the great nation of Texas, and I'm a proud graduate of the Texas Tech University. Uh, and so year after year, what I do, uh, you know, I've, I've been grafted into the state of Nebraska. I love, you know, I've adopted the Cornhuskers. They're like my second or third favorite team. Uh, but the reality is that uh, the Cornhuskers do not make the tournament like ever. I don't know if basketball is a thing in Nebraska. I know football is and beef and corn. But, uh, and then Creighton, you guys do have a good team. It was a rough loss yesterday in a great game. But what I always want to put out to, uh, to my beloved Nebraskans is y'all are welcome to join on my Texas Tech Red Raider bandwagon. All you have to do to make that happen, just get your guns up and say, go Tech. <laughs> Nobody did it. Y'all just laughed. So thank you. We got one bandwagon fan in here. Uh, we play tonight at 610. It'll be great. And so uh, I think one of the reasons uh, that we enjoy March Madness so much as a people, like even people that don't like basketball, love making brackets and love picking mascots and colors or whatever. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. But uh, the, one of the reasons we love March Madness is because we are a people that love stories. We are a people that love drama. And so uh, what we can see is this time and time again within the tournament. Like how many of you guys have uh, paid attention to the tournament and seen, yeah, there's some stories going on. There's some drama, right? So, like, people love underdog stories. Like, when that double-digit seed from, like, small town, small conference, uh, small college, wherever, like, beats uh, the big school, right? Like, it's like David beating Goliath, and we've seen that if you've tracked with this tournament. Uh, St. Peter's, number 15, you guys, have upset Kentucky, number two, number seven, Murray State. Uh, and who would pick that? Well, my six-year-old picked that because she picks mascots, and they're the peacocks. She's got the peacocks versus the dolphins in the final. It'll be great. Um, but we love underdog stories, right? Uh, we're a people that love stories of redemption. And so, like, when a, a player gets hurt uh, during the season and they come back and they lead their team, or maybe that coach that was shady somewhere else actually got some integrity, went somewhere, and he's leading the program and they're doing well. We love stories of redemption. We're also people that are drawn to stories of justice. So, like, maybe that coach from, like, a smaller school, he says, hey, this is not as prominent as a program as this one over here. So I'm going to leave this school and go to the more prominent one. And so this one's personal to me because uh, Texas Tech's former coach that led us to the national championship a few years ago, his name's Chris Beard, and he left Texas Tech to go to the University of Texas. 
Like, that's like unfathomable, right? And he recruits a number three recruiting class. And yet, can I just tell you what happened all year long as we played Texas? We dominated them, right? Like the smaller dominates the one that's supposed to be bigger and better. That is the justice of God, in my opinion, if I'm being honest. And right, So what I'm getting at is that each game right, within the tournament is a smaller story or a smaller drama within a larger story, a larger drama known as March Madness. And so I say all this to say, uh, because we're going we're gonna to see this in our text today. We're going to see that Nehemiah is a smaller story within the larger story of Scripture. And today in chapter 9, we get this unique place where we get to zoom out of the smaller story up to see the larger story. We go from the ground level to 30,000 feet, and we see the people of God remember and recount God's bigger story of redemption, that he is a God who is redeeming and reconciling a people to himself, that there is a meta-narrative of story of redemption. And so what we will see today is a prayer of repentance from the people of God recounting his faithfulness to give mercy and grace and forgiveness to an unfaithful people. We'll hear about a faithful God pursuing an unfaithful people that continually turn away from him. And so the main idea for our text today is this, that God is faithful to give mercy and forgiveness when his unfaithful people repent. That is, God is faithful to give mercy and forgiveness when his unfaithful people repent. And so this is really good news for us in here this morning because we can be sure that our God is faithful. That whatever he says is true, that whatever he does is just and right, and that all his promises will come to pass. We can know that God is faithful in all that he says and all that he does. And this also reminds us that it's not our faithfulness that makes us right with God. It's not our works or our resume or our goodness or our awesomeness. It's his faithfulness to us. It's his faithfulness in the person and work of Jesus Christ that makes us right with him. And so this matters for us here this morning, church, because we can all experience times of sin and distress and hardship on this side of glory. And in fact, we're going to experience those things. We're going to battle with unfaithfulness and wrestle with unfaithfulness and sin. And every day, church, we are confronted with decisions that we have to make to either choose to be faithful or not be faithful. We have opportunities to be faithful or not faithful. And so what we can do is like the Israelites, we can run headlong into rebellion, thinking that we know how to live our life best, that we chase the things of this world for life and purpose, or we can be just like the Israelites as well and just sit back comfortably and complacently and seek to build our own kingdom, our own name, our own reputation, our own wealth, while we live for our wants, our needs, and our desires. And so no matter how we choose to walk in sin and unfaithfulness, This text tells us that God's mercy and forgiveness is available to us all. And so this text reminds us of the good news that there is more mercy in Christ. There is more grace in Christ. There is more forgiveness in Christ than there is sin in us. And this is good news. And so what we're going to see is a process and a prayer in Nehemiah that's actually like in Nehemiah 9 that is a model for us on how we should approach the Lord when we're confronted with our sin, when we become aware of our sin. It's going to show us a pathway to repentance. And so what I want to point out today is three faithful responses that we should have as a church when we're confronted with our sin, when we're made aware of our sin. And so let's dive into the first one. It is this. We respond faithfully to our sin by responding humbly to God's truth. 
by responding humbly to God's truth. And so look with me uh, at chapter 9, verse 1. It says this, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And so we're going to pause there, and we've got to remember where are we at within the context of Nehemiah 9. And so last week, uh, Gavin preached Nehemiah 8, uh, and he let us know like the wall was done. It was completed. It had been rebuilt around Jerusalem. And so what we see in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 7 is the people of God rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. But then we see this transition happen in chapters 8 through 10 where we go from, hey, the wall is done. We're not rebuilding that anymore. But now God is rebuilding his people from the inside out. And so they've completed the wall. They gather on the first day of the seventh month. Uh, There's like 50,000 Israelites there. And what they decide to do is like, hey, let's actually read from the book of the law. Let's read God's word. And so Ezra grabs it. He starts reading through it. uh, And in the midst of all of that, like revival and renewal break out. The people of God respond to the word of God. And so they start by actually uh, the the word of the, the Lord is read and they're actually cut. They're convicted of their sin but they keep reading and they see, oh, hey, the first day of the seventh month is actually supposed to be a celebration. It's the festival of trumpets. And that festival of trumpets points to the 10th day of the month, which was the day of atonement. Atonement, And then after that, there is another festival, the festival of booths, that happens from the 15th to the 22nd. And so this whole month, the people of God have been like celebrating and remembering what he's done. And the 23rd day is a day of holy convocation where they're not supposed to do anything. And so we're picking up here on the 24th day of the seventh month. And the people are literally sitting in sackcloth, dust, ashes, and they're fasting. And so we see this transition from celebration to conviction. And why is that? And it's because day after day, as they gathered over these 24 days, the word of God was read to them. And in the midst of the celebration, it was still cutting them. It was still convicting them. It was still, they were being confronted by their sin and their unfaithfulness and the continued unfaithfulness of the people of God. And so they were convicted. And in this conviction, uh, pick up with me in verses 2 through 5. We want to see how they respond in the midst of that. It says, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood some Levites. Jack read all their name. You guys got it. And they cried a loud voice to the Lord, their God. And the Levites, there were some more there. uh, They stood up. or. They said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And so what I want you to notice is what the people of God do here. So they have a long and massive pity party, right? That's what we see them doing here. Like, no, that's not what we see them doing here. Uh, They beat themselves up and they heap guilt and shame and condemnation on themselves and on others. Like, no, that's not what they do here. They act like they don't know or they haven't heard about their sin. They just seek to ignore it. No, that's not what they do here. And they don't just say forget it and choose to do whatever they want. They gather on this day and they literally read the book of the law for six hours. And then they spend six hours humbly bowed down and prostrate, confessing their sin to the Lord and then responding in worship. And so I think this is a model for us today. Uh, In case y'all didn't know, I'm going to preach for six hours. I hope you've ordered your Jimmy John's, you've got your crock pots on low, and then we're going to all sit crisscross applesauce and just confess our sins to the Lord. 
That sounds amazing. Y'all are like, is he serious? I don't know him well enough. I'm not serious. Anyways, but what I'm pointing at is we see the people of God in humility going to the Lord. They start a humble prayer of repentance in verse 5 that goes all the way to the end of the chapter. And so as the people are convicted of their sin, the people respond by humbly going to God with their sin. They confess their sin to him. And so church, if we're wondering what is our faithful response to sin, it's to humbly go to God with our sin and to confess it. And so if I can just be honest here for a moment, like I've been a Christian for over uh, 20 years. The Lord saved me when I was like uh, 16. Uh, And when I'm confronted with my sin, like my response is not always this humble posture of dependence and going to the Lord. And so even this week, like my wife on Friday comes to me and is like, hey, can I just talk with you about some things and how I'm feeling and what's going on? And I'm like, okay. And she proceeds to kind of make me aware of some things where I may be falling short. And can I just say, my response was totally humble. I'm like, you're right. No, I'm like, oh, if we're doing this, let me tell you about some things that I've seen in your heart and life. Like if we're going to play that, you know, so what I'm getting at is like my response was not humble. Oftentimes I can wrestle with minimizing and justifying my sin. And so like I can respond shortly or harshly or in anger towards my wife and kids. And instead of in my heart owning that, I can choose to blame shift. And I'm like, oh, boo, if you wouldn't have responded to me that way, I wouldn't have responded that this way to you. That is your fault. Or kids, if you would have just been faithfully and perfectly obedient, I would have not raised my voice to you. And so what I do is instead of owning my actions, I put it back on them. I blame shift onto them. Or maybe I'm talking with someone and I don't tell the whole truth or I embellish something and there's just this internal wrestle in me that's going, hey, you weren't like truthful. And yet what I do is I I justify it by telling myself that I was not not honest with them. I just didn't tell them all the details, right? And so what I'm doing is spinning things in my own mind to justify me not being truthful. Or maybe I become uh, aware of sin, like I'm looking for the approval of others. And so what I'll do is minimize it or compare myself to others and be like, well, at least I'm like not as bad as that dude. Like he's like paralyzed by his approval of others. And so I compare and I minimize or I downplay my sin. And so I could keep going with ways that I seek to minimize my sin when I'm confronted with sin. But I think we can kind of relate with that in the room. I'm assuming we can because there's like some snickering as I talk about these things. But church, I think the question that we all have to wrestle with is this. Where do you go when you're confronted with your sin? What do you do when you're confronted with your unfaithfulness? Do you play games? Do you minimize? Do you blame shift? Do you justify? Or does your sin lead you to have a humble heart before the Lord? When his word and his spirit reveal sin to you, are you in the practice of humbly bringing your sin to the Lord? And so, church, we have to remember that the the first and the initial faithful response when we're confronted with our sin, when we're aware of our sin, is that we have to humbly go to God with our sin and confess it. And so that's, once again, the first faithful response. Let's look at the second faithful response to sin that we see in this text, and it's this. We faithfully respond to sin by remembering God's faithfulness, by remembering God's faithfulness. And so look with me at verse 6. It says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their host and the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. 
And so we see that the Israelites had already humbly acknowledged their sin. They had turned to God. But you might be asking the question, why do they go to God with their sin? And the reality is we know, uh, and what we'll see in this text, is because there is only one person who can deal with our sin. God is the only one who can forgive sin. And as they uh, sit here, uh, they have experienced this before all throughout their history. And so the people of God uh, proceed here to remember and give a history of the faithfulness of God in forgiving them, forgiving them of their sin. And so starting here in verse 26, we see this 26, or verse 6, we see this 26-verse rundown of God's character and his faithfulness from creation to covenant to exodus to wilderness to conquest to judges to prophets to exile to the present time of rebuilding the wall. And so Nehemiah chapter 9 is this beautiful recounting of God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. It is the fullest summary of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. It's a biblical theology of God's faithfulness. And so if you're in here and you're going, hey, I I get we're preaching through a book of the Old Testament. I want to know what the book or what the Old Testament is about. Read Nehemiah chapter 9. You might be going, what does it say? That God is faithful to an unfaithful people from creation until now. And so what we see in in these verses are some patterns. And so we see God being good to Israel. And then we see Israel rebelling and being unfaithful. And then we see them cry out and ask for mercy and forgiveness. And we see God showing mercy and forgiveness to them. And then repeat. And then repeat. And so there are at least six cycles of this pattern in Nehemiah chapter 9. And so... Uh, and so that we don't have a six-hour sermon today, like really? I'm not going to walk verse by verse through this, but what I've done in, in these cycles is pull out three key themes, three truths that are evident in all of the cycles. And these are things that we need to remember in the midst of uh, our unfaithfulness. And so we're going to look specifically at the Exodus and Wilderness account. And so the first truth that we need to remember and that we see in this text is that we have to remember that God never leaves or forgets his people. And so look with me at verses 9 through 11. They say, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard the cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, So that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast out their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. And so just as a reminder of what we see here is that God's people were in slavery in Egypt. They were doing backbreaking work under uh, the authority of harsh taskmasters. Uh, And so these people are feeling forgotten, neglected, used, abused, enslaved. And in this place, they cry out to God. And so God hears the cries of his people, and he responds. He makes a way to deliver them and to save them. And so through ten plagues and a chase through the desert and the parting of a Red Sea uh, and the sea coming back down and destroying an army, we see God miraculously save and deliver his people from slavery and death. And so what we're seeing here is that God never forgets or leaves his people. And so I know in this room, there's probably people in this room, if we're being honest, that are in hard and difficult places. And you might be asking the question, like, has God forgotten me? Has God left me? Is God angry at me? Has he abandoned me? And the reality is, is that when we're in difficulty or in darkness, we can all 
question and doubt God. But church, let me just say, let's not forget in the darkness what God has shown us in the light. And so can I just tell you that if you are in Christ, that God knows you, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he's for you, that you're held firm in him, that he never lets you go, even though we might seek to let go of him. And so in the midst of these hard places, God may not give you what you want, but he will give you what you need, which is namely himself. And so what we can count on is that God is committed to forming us more into the image of his son. And no matter what we walk through, he's going to use that in that process. And so oftentimes this forming is going to happen through trials, suffering, and the storms of life. But don't forget that God is with you, that he's not left you or abandoned you or forgotten you. And so that's the first truth that we remember. The second truth that we need to remember and that we see in this text is this, that God leads and provides for his people. And so look with me at verses 12 through 15. They say, by a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which you should go. You come down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. And so uh, I know some of you guys like have like new and amazing cars. Some of y'all might have like the most up-to-date technology. But can I say that no one in here has a GPS like this? No one in here is following, uh, you know, a pillar of smoke or fire in the day or in the night. But what we see is that God is leading his people. And so God gave them uh, also the law and the commandments to instruct them on how they should live in right relationship with him. He's literally given us a playbook on how we can live our lives for his name and his fame and his glory. He provided for them daily for their physical needs, manna from heaven. Imagine all the like Lamar's donuts you could imagine just Therefore, that'd be a bad decision for some of us, but he's providing for him daily and he's meeting physical needs. And so church, can I just say that he didn't just provide and lead his people then, he still does this for us today. And so when we've trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord, we are indwelt with his spirit. God is in us. Like we don't have to follow a pillar of smoke or fire because God is in us. And so this means that we can be a people that are spirit-led and spirit-empowered moment by moment throughout the day as we seek to yield and walk in his power. And so God is with us. He is in us. God has given us himself, but he's also given us his word, his divine truth to shape us, to mold us, to inform us, to instruct us, to guide us. And so this is amazing, you guys. Like if we want to know truth, all we have to do is open our Bible. Like if we want to hear from our God, all we have to do is open our Bible. It's his word to us. And so God has given us himself and his people, or uh, himself and uh, his word, but he's also given us his people. We're not walking through this life in isolation. And so God leads and provides for his people with his word, his spirit, and his people walking through life together. And so that's the second truth we remember. The third truth that we need to remember and see in this text is that God is ready to forgive. God is ready to forgive. And so look with me at verses 16 and 17. And they say, 
But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. And so what's amazing here is that in the midst of walking through and experiencing this amazing deliverance from slavery in Egypt and God providing for them uh, for their needs every day and guiding them as they walked along the, uh, a path with him, the people of God choose to rebel. And so we see the people consistently stiffen their necks and harden their hearts against the Lord. They forget and neglect his faithfulness to them. They chase idols and the things of this world and they think they know best time and time again how to live their life and what we see is train wreck after train wreck the only thing that the people of God are faithful to do is to be unfaithful they are faithfully unfaithful and yet in their unfaithfulness we see that God has continually shown mercy and forgiveness to his people we've seen God continually pursue them and so we are reminded that God is a God who forgives who shows grace, who shows mercy, that he's ready to forgive his people, that he's gracious and merciful, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love, and he is faithful. And so, Christian, what this means for you in this room is that you cannot out the grace of God, that there is nothing that you have done or are currently doing or will one day do that is outside of his grace, his forgiveness, and his mercy. And so we have to remember that God never leaves or forgets his people Uh, that he leads and provides for his people, and that he is ready to forgive. And you might be in here going, "Are are you sure about that? And I think all we have to do if we're questioning that is look to Jesus. He is the ultimate example of God not forgetting his people or leaving his people. He is the ultimate example of God leading and providing for his people in their greatest needs, and he is the ultimate example of God being ready to forgive his people. And so God came to us, he put on flesh as the God-man, Jesus Christ, and he lived the perfect sinless life that we couldn't live. He was faithful when all we could be was unfaithful. And then he died the death that we deserve for our sin as our substitute, the faithful one, for the unfaithful. And he did this so that an unfaithful people could be made right with a faithful God. And so we are made right with God when we put our faith in the faithful one, Jesus Christ. And so, church, we take our sin to God because he is the only one who faithfully paid the penalty for our sins, and he's the only one that can be faithful to forgive us of our sins and show us mercy and grace. And so we have to remember this. We remember his past faithfulness because it reminds us and points us to the fact that he's going to continue to be faithful. We remember his character because it reminds us that he is who he is and he will continue to be that. And so we remind ourselves of his faithfulness because we are just like the Israelites. We're stiff-necked and hard-hearted. We're serial forgetters and drifters. We forget and neglect the story of God's gracious work in our own hearts and lives. And so about a month ago, we celebrated uh, baptism at West and at Midtown. Uh, And I think most of us would agree, if you've been uh, here on a baptism Sunday, they're always amazing. But can I ask, like, what makes baptism Sunday amazing? Is it the venue, the old, like, bread bakery that's in Midtown? I mean, we've done some things in here. Chip and JoJo would be proud, right? It's a a great environment. 
that might contribute to it. Uh, is it the worship set that Ryan put together? Like it, it's good, and that contributes. Is it uh, the sermon that Chris or Gav preach? That's good as well. It contributes to it. Is it those uh, shots that our tech team set up with the camera angles, and as people come out of the water, there's like a foot drum pounding and just a great shot. That's what makes it awesome, right? No, it's, it's good. But I think time and time again, what makes Baptism Sunday amazing and why we love Baptism Sunday is because what we hear is stories of God's faithfulness to pursue an unfaithful people, that he faithfully seeks and saves the lost, that he faithfully continues to save us, sustain us, and transform us by his grace and mercy. And so it's the stories, it's us remembering and recounting God's faithfulness in the heart and lives of his people. And so we, church, uh, have to remember this Every day. I think there's one simple yet profound application. Are we remembering the story of God's faithfulness in the lives of his people? And are we remembering his faithfulness in our own heart and life? Are we in the practice of remembering and reflecting on God's grace in our hearts and lives regularly? So, can I just ask, when's the last time that you actually paused and remembered how the Lord has saved you? how he's sustained you in hard seasons, how he's conformed you and transformed you more into his image. And so City Light, we must be a people that remember who God is, that he's the creator and sustainer of all things, that he is faithful. We've got to remember what he has done for us, that he was faithful for us in our unfaithfulness so that we could be made right with him, that we've been brought from death to life, that we've been made alive in him. And we also must remember what is true of us now in him. And so guess what? When we're unfaithful or when we walk in sin, it's no longer our sin or our unfaithfulness that defines us when we're in Christ. It's his faithfulness. It's who he is and what he's done for us that defines us. And so this means our identity is secure in him. Our identity is not sinner. Our identity is chosen, adopted, loved, fully accepted. And so, church, he has transformed us, and he's continuing to transform us, and we have to remember his faithfulness in our own heart and life. And so that's the second way that we faithfully respond to sin. We remember God's faithfulness to us every day. Let's look at the last way uh, that we respond faithfully to sin, and that's this, by repenting of our unfaithfulness, by repenting of our unfaithfulness. And so pick up with me in verses 32 through 37. They say this, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon you. You have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, enjoying your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, We are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great 
distress. And so I know we've had a lot of verses here this morning. It's a, a long chapter, but as we see here, we, we see the people of God repent. And so I want to ask you, what comes to mind when I say confession and repentance? Uh, and so maybe your mind goes to a booth where you walk in and there's a wall uh, between you uh, and another man and you just say, hey, uh, I uh, confess or repent. Maybe your mind goes to like TV specials like Dateline NBC with Chris Hansen where he pops out and is like, I got you, confess. Maybe your mind goes, uh, and I know Gavin hit this a few weeks ago, but maybe your mind goes to those soapbox preachers or the people on the corner that are holding up the signs that say repent or perish or turn and burn. Uh, and maybe your mind goes to thinking that confession and repentance is only for those really big sins, whatever those really big sins are. And so what I want to point out is all of these things are a little off, but what we see in this text is what biblical repentance actually looks like. And so we have talked a lot uh, about confession and repentance throughout the book of Nehemiah. We've talked about it in like chapter 1 and in like chapter 4 and multiple chapters and so what we see is it is one of the repeated themes. And so I want to start out by recognizing, once again, confession and repentance are not the same thing. And so confession is an acknowledgement of sin. It's an admission of guilt or wrongdoing. And so it's saying, Jesus, I've done wrong. I've sinned. I've been unfaithful. I've messed up. And that's what the people of God uh, in this text did in verses 1 through 5. And yet repentance, on the other hand, is a turning away from sin and a turning to and trusting in God. It's saying, Jesus, I'm going to go, uh, or I'm going to tell you that I've sinned, but I'm actually going to trust you and that your way is better, and I'm going to go where you tell me to go. I'm actually change directions and follow you now. And so it's not just an admitting to sins, it's a leaning into him for his help to turn away from him. And that's what we see the people of God do here. They repent. And so in their repentance, they're not focused on themselves. They're focused on God and his character. They don't minimize or justify their sin. They holistically own their sin from the leaders to the people. And they say, we've acted wickedly and we've been unfaithful. And their primary concern is not their present circumstances. Their primary concern is that they've sinned against an infinitely and holy and perfect God. And so we see a desire in their hearts to have true and lasting change, that they want to turn away from sin and trust in God. And so they acknowledge that, yes, we do want deliverance from our present circumstances. And here's the irony. The people of God had gone back to Jerusalem. They had rebuilt the walls. But this text reminds us that this land was already supposed to be theirs, that they were supposed to be ruling and reigning over it for God's glory and his good, and yet they're enslaved in the land that God promised to give to them because of their sin and their unfaithfulness. And so in the midst of that, they acknowledge that and they say, Lord, we want you to show us mercy again in the midst of this hard situation and circumstance. Would you deliver us again just like you have in the past? And so they know and believe that God is faithful to his people and they're willing to do whatever God asked them to do. And so next week in chapter 10, we'll see that the people of God are actually, like God has already made a covenant with them. He's made several covenants with them. And they're going, Lord, we're ready to make a covenant uh, to you that we're going to be faithful to the covenants. And so they are ready to take next steps. And so uh, as we wrap up today, let me close with this. And so we've talked before about uh, repentance getting a bad rap. But we need to be a people who regularly practice the spiritual discipline of repentance in our hearts and our lives. And so this text today has given us a biblical model 
of how we should faithfully respond to sin in our lives. And that is we go humbly to God. We remember his faithfulness and we repent of our sin. And so church, repent and believe is a foundational theme of the Christian life. It becomes the growing, active, and ever-renewing lifestyle of a spirit-led Christian. And so we don't just repent and believe one time for salvation. We do. If you've trusted in Jesus, at some point in time, you've acknowledged I'm sinful and separated. I need the grace of another to make me right with you. We've repented and we've believed. But uh, repent and believe is a lifestyle that we should live every day when we're confronted with our sin. And so this is showing evidence that sin is being uprooted in our heart so that the gospel can take deeper root. And so we are to live a lifestyle of repentance. And so church, as we walk uh, through this text today and we see a pathway, a model for repentance, can I just ask, where do you need to repent? Where have you been unfaithful to the Lord? Where have you compromised and drifted? Maybe it was, a, in your eyes, a major thing, or maybe it's just those small uh, things that we do to turn away from the Lord or drift a little bit or compromise. And so where has selfishness, self-interest, self-promotion, self-service eclipsed your worship of the Lord? And so maybe you're in this room here this morning and you've never acknowledged that you're sinful and need the grace of another. You've never bowed the knee to Jesus. You're living your life in your own power and what you've seen is maybe train wreck after train wreck. But can I just say in the midst of your unfaithfulness and your sin, God is faithful to forgive, to extend grace and extend mercy when we turn to him. And so would this morning be the morning where you actually turn to him and you put your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord? And maybe you're in this room and you have trusted in Jesus. He is your Savior and Lord, but maybe you're in hiding with something. Maybe you're walking in guilt and shame with some sin that's there. Maybe you're in the practice of minimizing and justifying your sin instead of owning your sin. Can I just encourage you again today that our God is faithful to forgive, to show mercy, to show grace when we take our sin to him. And so would you confess your sin? Would you repent of your sin today? And so church, one more time, let me remind us that it's not our sin that defines us when we're in Christ. It's Jesus and his faithfulness. It's his grace and mercy that defines us. And so this should produce in us a freedom to be open and honest with our sin and our lives and live a lifestyle of repentance. And so Romans 2.4 says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so may we be a people who experience the kindness of God here this morning and every day as we seek to live a lifestyle of repentance. And so church, would you pray with me right now? And so, Father, we are thankful as we recount your story in Nehemiah 9 uh, this morning that you are a faithful God, that you are the creator and sustainer of all things. And in the midst of all of that, you have been faithful to pursue an unfaithful people. That you are a God who is uh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that you are quick to show us grace and mercy and forgiveness when we turn to you. And so, Lord, we do confess that we are a uh, people who have been unfaithful. But I pray here this morning uh, that if there are things that we have in hiding or we have drifted or minimized things, I pray that uh, we don't fall into the enemy's games of just walking in guilt and shame and living in a lifestyle 
of, of sin, but rather I pray, Spirit, that you would bring conviction for our sin, that we would take our sin to the Lord, that we would confess it, that we would remember who he is and what he's done for us, and that we would repent of our sin, that we would say, I don't want to walk that way anymore. I want to walk with you, Jesus. And so, Spirit, would you empower us to repent and believe this morning and repent and believe every day of our life. And so we're thankful for your goodness to us. We're thankful for your grace and mercy. We are thankful and we worship you as a God who is faithful to an unfaithful people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.